uh, let's, uh, let's get in, and uh, we got work to do as we, as we normally do. We've been going through, as a church, some, some uh, hard things in Romans. We've been hearing some things that, that are difficult to, to hear, to process. Uh, sometimes you guys leave on, on Sundays, and you're like glazed over like a Krispy Kreme. You have this look on your face, and you're just kind of like, what just happened? And I don't know, I got to talk about that with somebody. I don't really know what he just said. I had to read it again or whatever. That's okay. Uh, that's an all right process. We want you thinking um, on Sundays when you, when you leave. If I'm not challenging you to think, I'm really not doing uh, my, my role as a pastor. So as, we, as we've been going into tough things, we're going to be going into more tough things. I wish I could tell you, hey, take a deep breath. It's going to get really easy. It's not. Uh, so what I've done is I've been... I've been uh, specifically and strategically redundant on two big things to get us ready to hear tough things. If you haven't written these down, please write these down. I've been redundant. I want to continue to be redundant on these things. The first one is this, all right, that um, God is for God. All right, I've been redundant on this over and over again. I want to continue to show you this because in our Western culture, in our American uh, culture that we live in, it's very man-centric. It's easy to fall into this idea that everything is about us, including God. He's really for me, um, and then we get misplaced and not getting a proper biblical perspective, which God is ultimately for God. And I want to show you how people can even twist Scripture into making it think that God is ultimately for us and not himself. Look at Psalm 23 um, and what a Psalm of David says. Psalm, Psalm of David, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. It makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Let's stop right there because right now it sounds like God is really into me. All right, he loves me. He's like pursuing me. He's wooing me. He's all about me. He's doing all these things like leading me to paths of righteousness, to waters, green pastures. He's really loving me. And yes, he is to all of those things. But why does he do those things? For his name's sake. For his own name's sake. That is why he is for you and he does all of those things so that you would be made, he would be made much of himself through you. For his name's sake, God is ultimately for God. I'm telling you that because we're going to get into some things here in Romans and you're going to look at it and you're like, whoa, it doesn't really look like God is for man right here. This is weird. Why would God do this? Because that's not really fair to man. That doesn't really look good for man. You're going to need to go back to that principle I just laid out and ultimately know that God is for God, his own namesake. The second principle that I've been redundant on is that God is truth. He is the truth of what we are seeking, not our emotions, uh, not our feelings, not traditions, not what granny told us, not what my friend told me and he reads the Bible. None of those things define what we think to be true. Simply, God is truth. And what we're trying to do in Romans is say, God, teach us your truth. We've been trying to be open to those things. Look at John 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. 
right? That's what we're praying to God in the study of Romans, that he would sanctify us in the truth and that his word is what is going to guide us in the truth, not any other things uh, emotionally driven that make us believe what we believe. We simply want to know the word. So here's what we've been doing as a church. If you're kind of joining us or maybe you've been away and you're kind of catching up, we've been going through the book of Romans Um, expositorily, exegetically. And here's what that basically means. That's kind of preacher talk, but let me tell you what that means. It means that we take a book of the Bible and we go through it chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and we just simply walk through and pull everything out that it says. We don't veer from it. There's no agenda. It's just, here's what it says. Let's just teach it. And that's what we've been doing as a church. The opposite of that is called topical preaching. And that would be when I would, maybe we could just take a topic in the Bible, uh, like prayer, for instance. And we did this. And we just, we grab a bunch of passages from different parts of the Bible that support the topic that we're preaching. There's nothing wrong with that. All right, we do that sometime, as I stated. But we are committed to giving you and feeding you a steady diet of expository preaching because here's why. I have to preach the full counsel of God and when we preach like that, it ensures uh, from you to me that I do not skip the hard things. I'm committed to them and I'm not going to steer around them and go around them. This is just a hard road uh, that we have to go down in Romans 9 and we just can't get around it. It's kind of like going to Destin i got to drive through Alabama. I don't really want to do that, uh, but it's just a necessary thing that we do uh, going through this. So that's what we're going to do in this passage and as we continue to go through. If I had this goal uh, that on Sundays and I stood up on stage and I said, hey, man, I don't want to ruffle any feathers today. I, I want peace I don't want any tension. Uh, in fact, a win for me today would be that everybody leaves and pats me on the back and say, good sermon, Brother R.C., right? If that was the goal of what I would do, I would never teach about homosexuality, uh, sex, uh, predestination, election, money. I wouldn't talk about those things at all, right? That would offend you, and that would put us on different paces. So that is not what we're committed to doing. We are committed to teaching you the full counsel of God, and that is what we're going to do, and that's what we're going to continue to do. That's our church, and that's the heartbeat of our church. So Romans 9 is one of those hard chapters. It's one of those roads. Uh, it's kind of like I-24. You want to avoid it at all costs. Uh, there's no other route around it. Uh, but we're going to drive right through it. If Romans 8, we, we said this repeatedly, that Romans 8 was considered the best chapter in the Bible. All right, well, Romans 9, in my opinion, is the uh, most difficult chapter in the Bible. The most difficult. Not because it's hard to understand, But it's simply hard to accept for a lot of people. I know a lot of godly, Jesus-loving Christians that have a very difficult time with the theme of Romans 9. The theme is election. It's the doctrine of election. And some of you are like, what is he talking about? We're talking about presidential election. What's he saying? Uh, No, we're not. We're talking about biblical election. And this might be new for some of you. And uh, really what the the doctrine of election is, we talked about it a couple of weeks ago, and it simply is this. It is the act of God where he sovereignly chooses to save and, and put his affections of love on some before time begin, not based upon any merit or works 
that would be seen, but based upon his good, sovereign glory. All right? God has said, I'm going to save some, and I'm going to pass over others. And I'm going to do that based upon not what works of man will do, but by my own good glory. This is what I'm going to do. So it is a hard chapter in the Bible. I already stirred up some things. But because it is a hard, hard chapter, a lot of pastors, a lot of Christians, a lot of churches, they, uh, they'll try to avoid it because it is so difficult. And they'll, they'll come up with a couple of routes uh, to kind of get around it, so to speak. Uh, the first route would be to act like it's just not there. Uh, all right, Romans 9's over here. I'm not looking at it. I'm not looking at it. I just want to love Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I don't want to talk about these things. Um, and they just avoid it at all costs. The second route that a lot of people uh, do take in this understanding of election is they will say this is an Old Testament uh, principle. Romans 9 is talking about the election of Israel as a nation, and it has nothing to do with individuals in the New Testament. Uh, we believe at Life Point Church that both of those views are wrong routes, wrong routes, uh, and we, we are going to preach that it is the sovereignty of God and who he chooses and who he elects, and we're going to unpack that all through the book of Romans and, and Romans 9 specifically. So uh, that's where we're going to go. Let's go to um, what I want you to know, because some of you, when I start talking about election, some of you are, you've already embraced this. It's just something you've heard before. It's not new to you, and you just wrap up in it, and you're like, man, I sleep well at night. I trust the sovereignty of God, and I know he's God. He's bigger than me, and I just love this doctrine. I'm all good with it. And then there are others that, like I said, they love Jesus. They've been processing for a long time, and they just struggle with this. Uh, a lot of Christians struggle, especially American Christians. They put up the biggest fight against the doctrine of election, and I want to tell you why. In the, the culture that we live in, the American society, uh, we are big on self-determination, self-power. There's power in you. Be all you can be. Have it your way. Uh, you can be a self-made millionaire. You can work up, pull up your bootstraps, white-knuckle your way to success, and you can obtain everything that you absolutely want. That is what our culture teaches. So then inherently, we learn that thing, or we learn those things all our entire life, and then we get to our salvation. We have a very tough time in believing that we wouldn't have anything to do with our salvation. Are you kidding me? I've got to get some credit there. I have to have some power. So we fight against those things, and we are pushing back against what Scripture ultimately says. Let me tell you about what I, how my encounter, my, my understanding to this doctrine about four years ago, I was not a pastor four years ago. Um, just, man, I'm a churchgoer loving Jesus, growing, and I'm sitting in seats like you guys. And I'm in a Bible study, and, uh, and they're, they're discussing salvation. How do people get saved? What's the process? And how does it work? And God, and, and we're, we're talking about these things. And this guy, during the group, he looks at me and he says, hey, did you know that God actually chose you before you chose God? And I was like, what, what, what what'd you say? Yes, God chose you before you chose God. No, 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 no. I, I was there the day that I talked to my pastor. I, I was there that day. And I clearly remember I chose him that day. Uh, you're crazy. Where are you getting this stuff from? And his response was, the Bible. All right, that was what he said to me, the Bible. All right, so initially my emotions kicked in. 
All right, my, my emotions and my lack of biblical knowledge kicked in. And there's no way this is true. I've never heard it before, but I'll tell you what was underneath all of that resistance is a lack of big biblical knowledge. That guy knew the Bible and the doctrine of, of election, salvation. He had studied the scriptures more than I had. I had a couple of verses, man. I had John 3.16. I'm going to throw this. I'm going to throw that out there. But I had not really studied the scriptures. I was basing it upon feelings, emotions, what others told, or I would eisegete and pull out a passage to support what I thought. Well, as this idea kept coming around, I could not ignore it. So I did commit to studying what the Bible said about these things. Uh, after all, I said that I believed in the Bible. I believe it to be true and, and, and errant. Without error, it's perfectly true. So if I really, really believe that, now I was trying to put it to the test. I really had to study the Bible to see. As I began to study, maybe the course of six months to a year, all right, God had a lot of patience with me. And after about uh, somewhere between six months to a year, don't really remember, but my, my love affair with self-determination and my ultimate free will and salvation died. It died. It was no longer there. Yes, I have some free will outside of after I'm a follower of Christ. I can do some things, but I have nothing outside of the authority and the sovereignty of God. And it died. It went away. And the, the, the passionate love affair that I engaged in with the supremacy of God and choosing who he saves and who he does not save began to take place in me. And it was an incredible, incredible transformation. I say that, that's my own personal story. I'm not trying to project that upon you guys. Here's what I want to lay out, some, some clear grounds before we get into these things. The doctrine of election is not primary. It is not essential for salvation. All right, so let me tell you what is primary. Let me tell you what's bedrock. Let me tell you what's foundation to be a believer in Christ. you got to believe these or you cannot. All right? The virgin birth. The virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Fully man, fully God. Lived a perfect sinless life. Substitute for my sins on the cross. Died. Buried. Resurrected on the third day. Seated at the right hand of the Father. That's bedrock. We're not going to vary for those things. If you want to be a part of this church and be a Christian, you have got to hold firm to those things. We will fight if we're not on different pages on those things. Now, the doctrine of election is secondary. If you chose God or God chose you, that is secondary. It is not essential to your salvation. You are a Christian brother. It allows us to be on different stops along this journey all right it will not be divisive in our church so if you have issues with anyone on the opposite side of this doctrine you need to grow up all right you need to wrestle with God and the scriptures to to firm in what you believe and not wrestle with God's people on these things all right so let's hold firm to those things let's process let's struggle let's wrestle but let's not divide each other we will have we'll have liberty in non-essentials and we'll have we'll have uniformity in the in the primary things we're not bending on on those things okay so let's uh let's continue the second thing i would say this is that we can never fully grasp god because he's infinite 
No one's figured out God in the room. If you think you have an idea of God, who would want a God that you've already figured out, by the way? But who would say, I'm close-minded to these things. I don't want to hear these things because I figured out God. How arrogant and prideful would that be of us to say, I'm not open to listen to any secondary things. Let us, let us go in with a proper mind frame. Let's listen. Let's not let divide. Let's wrestle together. Um, I just kind of really set up the, an overview of Roman nine, Romans 9 with you today. All right, uh, because it is a, is a change of pace. Now, let's get ready for the specific text today where Paul is really going to pause on the theological concepts and he's going to simply reveal his heart today for his, his, his brethren. All right, he's going to reveal his heart and our bottom line today is passionate people have a burden for the lost, have a burden for people. All right, let's, uh, there we go. Passion for God produces a burden for people. That's what we're going to see out of Paul today. And that is hopefully what we will uh, we'll be moved to um, in this text today. So let's pray before we get in. Uh, God, we believe and trust in the sufficiency of your word. As we get down even deeper waters than even you took us into chapter 8, Father, I pray we hold firm to those things that we we proclaimed as a church that we, we won't fight, we won't divide, we will, we will struggle, we will process, we will engage, we will know that you are God and you are for God yourself in most ways, Father, and then also that your word is true. We love you. This church commits to you. Soften us up. Let us listen and hear to you today. In Christ's precious name, amen. All right, so Romans 9, we're going 1 through 3 first. We'll kind of break this in a couple of different uh, pieces here. But here's Paul. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. That's a good thing to know, right? We, we, we've listened to Paul for eight chapters. Thanks, Paul, for letting us know you're not lying. It's good. All right, my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Here's why he's telling us that. He's telling us he's not lying. He is being truthful. He's letting us know that the reason he is because he's, he's being convicted by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is what's guiding him, not his flesh, not his emotions, not his own thoughts. All right, That's how he knows it's true. And he says this, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Why does Paul have sorrow? Why does he have great anguish? Why does he have unceasing anguish in his heart for his kinsmen, his brethren, his fellow Jews, the Israelites, all of his ethnic brothers, he has great, great sorrow and unceasing anguish. Why? Because they've been cut off from Christ. They don't have Christ. So he has great sorrow and anguish because they're separated from Christ. Paul will go on to tell us why they've been separated by Christ. Those two things are, well, before that, you might be thinking right now, okay, why are they separated from Christ? Isn't this God's chosen people? Didn't God set aside the nation of Israel to save? Isn't that, what's going on here? 
he gives two answers. The first answer is this, that the Jews had rejected Jesus. They had, they had, they had become, he had become a stumbling block to them. They rejected him as their Messiah. They refused to declare him Lord over their lives. So they'd done all of those things. So yes, they're cut off from Christ. But the second answer is more important. Why those Jews were cut off from Christ. And he answers that in verse 6 by saying this. Not all Israel is true Israel. Not all of the ethnic people who were born in Israel are the really true spiritual Israel. I've set my affection, uh, my affection on some of Israel, but not all of Israel. That is what he's going to teach us next week in 6. We'll get down there shortly. All right, now here's something else you might be kind of thinking. That Paul ended up chapter 8 with a lot of promises to us. A lot of promises. He gave us that golden chain of salvation that he foreknew us, that he predestined and predetermined us to look like Jesus. He called us, he justified us, and he's going to glorify us. A lot of promises. He says that nothing will separate you from Christ. You're conquerors. There's no condemnation. So he ended it with a lot of promises. All right? And now we see that God's chosen people of Israel, that some of them are cut off from Christ. So they are now thinking, and you might be thinking these things right now too. Well, will God's promises fail? If God promised to save Israel, and now they're rejecting him, and they're cut off from Christ, has God's promises failed? failed and if they failed how in the world can all the things he just told us in chapter 8 be true for us will his promises fail again see Paul knew people had questions after he presented hard truths so he always goes and he answers the questions after he presents them so you might be here today and hearing these things and you your questions might be this is God fair in salvation chooses some but not chooses others Is that really fair? What about the Jews? Chose them. They rejected him. Is God failing? What is? Is God really sovereign over salvation? Do I really have nothing to do? What? what? All of those things. If you have those questions, this is the place for you in Romans 9. You're in the right place. And Paul's going to answer all of those questions as we proceed and we go forward. His answer to those kind of questions initially is simply this. Yes, God's promises always come true. They will never fail. And when he said that he is going to elect people, he did not mean a nation. He meant individuals that he would choose. We're going to see that clearly throughout 9. He says, yes, God's promises are always true. They will never, ever fail because God elects individuals. Before the creation of the world, that is what he did. We're not going to dig into too deep in that. We'll come back after um, in just a couple of weeks. Let's get back to Paul's heart. Let's go back and get a glimpse of his heart. If you think about the Jews, they had rejected Paul. Paul, uh, not only the message Paul was preaching of the gospel, but he was, he was a fellow brother of them, and he was now preaching to the Gentiles. He left them because they rejected the message. He says, I'm out of here. I'm going to go preach it to the Gentiles because they actually will listen to me. They'll hear me. 
So what did the Jews do in response to Paul? They wanted to kill him. They mocked him. They beat him. They put him in prison. That's what they wanted to do to Paul. So we would think that Paul's response to their hostility would be a passion that they would go to hell, not to heaven. I mean, after all, look at what they'd they'd really done to him. Look at all the things. And it says he had great anguish, unceasing anguish and sorrow in his heart, even for his enemies who had tried to beat him and kill him. All right, that's powerful. That is a powerful, powerful thing. And it shows the intensity of his anguish and the compassion that he had for his people. Why would, would Paul continue to preach Christ until his death to Jews and other people who rejected them? We have to look at his motivation. If Paul's motivation was anthrocentric, if it was man-centered, that he just wanted to go around and save men, that's what his motivation was, he probably would have stopped with the people who were beating him and say, they don't deserve that. I don't really care if that person has salvation or not. They don't deserve it. The reason Paul continued to preach Christ until his death is because his motivation was God-centric. He was passionate about the glory of God, not about man. Yes, he cared and had compassion for man. But above all things, he had compassion for man, uh, for, for, for God. All right, And that shows out in our own ways of sharing Christ with other people. If it's man-centered and you think that going around is just to save people and it's just you and, you and man saving people, let me tell you what's going to happen. Your judgmental heart's going to creep in really quick. And you're going to find a lot of reasons that you think that person does not deserve salvation. They don't deserve to hear about Jesus. I'm kind of indifferent to them. Uh, I, I don't, they're wicked. They are just so far from God. And I just don't think I want them to know Jesus. But if your motivation is God-centric, if you really want to proclaim the glory of God in the world, you will preach Christ to anyone. And you'll look at the world as a people that do not need to be conquered, but a people that will need to be redeemed. Right? You're after the glory of God. All right? That's the whole purpose of that. His motivation was good. Let's look at the intensity of his anguish. He's not just sad. I mean, he's not just like, I'm really bummed out. My brothers, uh, ethnic brothers, my kinsmen are, are, are going to go to hell. He's really not just bummed out about it. He's so, he has such an angst in him. He's so broken. And I believe in verse 3 that it reveals some of the most powerful words in all of Scripture. He's so broken that he wishes that himself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of his brothers, according to the flesh. He says... All right, anathema, anathema is the word for accursed. It's the Greek. Uh, it means eternal destruction, eternal damnation. Paul says, I wish eternal damnation for myself, cut off from Christ so my brethren, my kinsmen, would simply know Christ. That's intense. Now, we know Paul can't do that. He, he, can't, he can't give himself up. He can't forfeit his salvation. We just learned in Romans chapter 8 that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, including Paul himself. He can't give it up. 
Can't walk away. Can't sacrifice himself for his others. He's simply letting you know the intensity of his heart and the compassion. He is burdened and he's willing to give up his eternity. Now, I love to preach Jesus to people. I love to share the gospel with other people. But if I'm being honest, I don't know if I'm ready to give up my eternity for other people to know Christ. Maybe a kidney I might give you, all right? I might give that up. Eternity, uh, I'm not there. I don't know if I'll ever be there. I, I think it's safe to say for most of us in the room today, you're not there either. All right, you're not sacrificing your eternity, right? So somebody else would love Jesus. Yeah, you want him, but you don't want to sacrifice your own. Rest for a moment, because I'm not asking you to give up your, your eternity, okay? Take a deep breath. You can't do it anyway, by the way. Just said that, Romans 8, 28. Can't do it. But here's what I want you to know. I am asking you, and I do pray, that you would be willing to give up a lot of things so that people may know Christ and they would win souls for Jesus. Give up things like money, time, preferences, hobbies, job, possessions, pride, idolatry, anything that would keep and prevent you from proclaiming and sharing Jesus Christ, I pray that you would have a burden for lost people, that you would be willing to give up anything earthly, not eternal, anything earthly for the sake of others knowing Jesus Christ. I I pray that you start having a burden. There's a guy, uh, a pastor, he, uh, he was doing a sermon And he walked up, simple message. He said, I got a message for you today. It's three simple points, and then I'm going to get out of here. All right? He stands up to the congregation. He says, all right, first point, number one, there are millions of people on the course to hell right now. Point number two, hell, hell, hell. Point number three, most of you are more shaken up by the fact that I keep saying hell than you are about the millions that are going to hell. Now listen, I, I, I don't, I, when I look at Paul, I don't have that burden. I don't have that intensity of burden. I pray that God would give it to me. And I pray that God would do the same thing in you. And that's where we have to start. This is not a manufacture white knuckle. I got to do better. I have to have a better heart for the lost. Your first step, my first step is God, give me a burden for lost people who do not know Jesus, who are cut off from Christ. Pray that persistently, but be careful because he'll give it to you and then you've got to go do something about it. You can't sit on that anguish. I believe that Paul's teaching in this passage that we are obviously to share Christ with those in our affinity Those are people, our kinsmen, even maybe it's relatives that you have that don't know Jesus. And you just simply say, I wish they would love Jesus, but you never tell them about Jesus. I wish they would go to heaven, but I'm not going to be the one that does it. I don't want them to think I'm judgmental. How much do you really care about their souls? I believe Paul is telling us to have a great anguish to share Christ with people in our groups, our affinities. Maybe it's your workplace, friends, neighbors. 
sports teams, schools, students, wherever you're at, those nine to ten people that God has put in your life, I believe he's telling you to have an anguish in your heart that you would get up and you would share Christ because you have a burden for their souls. I also believe that this has global implications. It doesn't just stop at the local 910 affinity groups. He obviously wants us to have a burden for the nations, the world. The church is not feed America first, all right? That's not what we do. We are to have a burden heart for the Belgians, the, the, the Chinese, the Japanese, the Brazilians, all right? The Thai people. Everywhere we go, we are to have a burden for lost people simultaneously while we have a burden for the local ones in our affinity groups. That is what Paul is sharing. If we stop sharing, our flame burns out. Now, I don't mean lose your salvation, but it becomes a flicker. You know how you can tell? Oh, let me tell you, I, yesterday I was burning wood in my backyard. And, uh, man, I, I, it was tough to burn yesterday. It was green and windy and the wood was still a little bit wet. So I, I'd start the fire, got it going. And every time I kind of check out just a minute, that thing would start to die down. It just would start to go away because nothing was igniting that flame. It wouldn't keep going. So I had to keep throwing gas on it, uh, sticking other shrubs in there to kind of keep the flame going and going and going. You know how to tell that something has, has, an, has, 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 a, has a bursting flame in it? is if it's igniting other material. If it has a flame, it ignites other material. And a church and a believer who does not ignite other material, your flame will burn out. And I'm not talking about salvation. Your, your flame is flickering. And if you don't feed it, if you don't go ignite other material, other people in the world with your flame, it's going to burn out. You have got to feed it. And there's people in this church that I know, I see, I talk to, and man, their flame is burning bright. You can see it from a mile away. They talk about Jesus everywhere they go with their friends. They talk about, I'm really investing in this friend. I want him to know Jesus Christ. And they're burning. Their flame is bright. And they're constantly feeding the flame. And every time they, they, they share Christ, every time they talk about Christ with others, their flame gets brighter and brighter and brighter. And it not only ignites the one who's, who's, con who's connected to it, it ignites the own person. It makes their own flame bigger. And then there are those who have a barely flickering flame. Christ set a light at your conversion. It's just barely flickering. It just kind of sits there. It doesn't do anything. No one can see it. You savor the Savior of the world for yourself. You don't get out. You don't go. You don't talk to anybody about Christ. No one can see your light. And you say things like this. I'm in a spiritual funk. I've been there for about five years. I'm not really growing. I don't know what's really wrong. I think I need a new Bible study. No, you don't. You need to get around other material and let your flame ignite someone else. And when it bursts into flames, your own flame grows greater and brighter and brighter and brighter. You have to feed that flame. 
And that is how you must go out and evangelize and share Christ. Because it's not just for other people. I know that's what we think so many times. Man, that's just for other people. No, that's for your own soul. That's for your own sanctification. Some of the greatest moments in my entire life is when I get to share Christ and I see God's saving power take that call and message and bring it to life. It ignites me like crazy. I'm as much of a victor as that guy who just won Christ because God saved him. I want you to experience that. If you're in the room and you lead people to Christ and God saves, you know what I'm talking about. It's the greatest feeling ever. I want everybody who knows Jesus to experience that. Ignite your flame. Feed it before it burns. All right? Let's keep going. Because in this, uh, let's, go to, let's go back to Paul's heart. Let's go back to Paul's heart for the Israelites and see more about who these Israelites really were and what Paul says. They are the Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race... According to the flesh is the Christ who God overall blessed forever. Amen. Now go back to four. Here's what Paul's saying. That Israel has been given great privileges by God. He has set that nation, the ethnic nation, aside to give a general blessing to all of those people. Not saving every single ethnic Jew. But he did set them apart for special blessing. And he starts to list off all of these privileges that God has given them. And yet they still reject Christ. They had been given everything. They had gotten these things. Belongs the adoption, not adoption for salvation, but adopted the nation for a general blessing. He had given them the glory. He had revealed the glory of himself in the tabernacle, remember the holy, holiest of holies, that place where people, the high priest could see God's glory? He had given them that. He'd given them the covenants of all the great patriarchs, of those who would follow God. He'd given them the covenants, the promises. He had given them the law. He had given them the Mosaic law to say, here's the law. You're never going to be able to obtain it. Look at it, because this is what Jesus is going to fulfill for you. He'd given them the worship and the temples and the promises, all of the things that he said. I'm going to give you a Messiah. You're my people. In verse 5, he continues with the blessings. To them belong the patriarchs. All of the patriarchs, the great heroes of the faith, Abraham, Moses, David, and so on. All of the patriarchs, but the greatest of all, was a great advantage. And that person was someone of their own race, of their own flesh, the Christ who was God. He had given them all of those things, and yet they still rejected Jesus. Why? Why? Did they not have enough evidence? Did they not have enough proof? Hey, this is the Messiah and they wanted to kill him. This goes to show you that coming to Jesus Christ, being saved by God, is not an intellectual ascent. You don't get enough evidence of all. You gather up all the things, and you get them together, and you say, 
Wow, God, you've presented a great case to me here. I think now I'm going to choose you. The Israelites had everything, and they were spiritually blind. These Israelites were not true Israel. God had not set his love and affection on them, and that is why they rejected him. They had tons of privileges, and they did not have Christ. There's some agnostics in here today. You don't know what to believe about God. You're just kind of indifferent. There's some intellectuals that are sitting around waiting for more proof, more evidence of who God is. Before I give my life to this Jesus, I need more. This was me when I was a, before a follower of Christ. I need to know more. Give me more. Make a better case before I lay down my life for anyone Listen, you don't need more study. You need surrender. That's all you need. You need to cry out to God, save me. That's all you do. God, save me. There's nothing that you can do to save yourself. That's why in Romans 10, Paul will cry out about these Israelites and says, God, save them. Just save them. Now, clearly, Paul had just talked about predestination and God's sovereignty, and he knew That God had already determined who that was and who he was going to do that with. But Paul's response was not elitism, not pride, not arrogance. He didn't walk away and say, God's going to do what he's going to do. I'm out. He'll pick who he wants to pick. I'm out. No, Paul reveals his heart. He says, save them, God. I know you're going to do your will, but save them. This is what my heart says. And this is a lot like our American culture now, the supreme privileges that you and I have in living where we live. We're just like the Israelites. Walk outside the doors, throw a rock, you hit a church pretty quick. Get out your phone, your device, you can pull up six translations of the Bible. Some of you have six Bibles at your house. Some of you have really, really big, big Bibles. All right? We have church. We have worship. We have an awesome band. We have the full revelation of God. We have Old and New Testament. They only had old. They had everything. We have all of these crazy spiritual blessings. We don't have to fear today of being beaten. I don't have any fear right now that someone's going to come up and clock me. You can be a Facebook evangelist, and you don't have to worry about somebody coming to hunt you down. Amazing privileges, freedoms that we have. You get your Creek T-shirt out there in the lobby of the cafe. You can rock your Way FM on the way out. You can have all of those things, all of those advantages, and none of them have salvific power, not a single one. And yet some people are still even resting on their membership of the church and their baptism to save. None. Only one name saves. It's Jesus Christ. It's the only thing, and may we always stay rooted in that. Man, as we close up, I, I, I absolutely love and adore this church. I can't imagine being anywhere else. I'm humbled to lead it. I, I have deep affections for you to know God more, more than you know. So I love you. I love this church. And when I look at the church, I see so many people going through such spiritual growth, growing daily, loving God more. 
And it, it's a joy to my heart. When I see you doing that, I get fired up about it. If I look at this church, and if I'm being honest, and I look at the church and I see in the book of Acts, and the, the different church plants of Paul and the epistles, when I look at those churches and I look at this church, I see some different things. I see the early church that accomplished a lot of things with very, very little. And I see today's church accomplishing very little with a lot of things. They didn't have padded chairs. They didn't have projectors. They didn't have lights. They didn't have graphics. They didn't have an amazing, amazing band behind them. They didn't have any of those things. This is what they did have. They had a burden for lost people, for the glory of God. That's what they had. They had that. Life Point Stewart's Creek, that is what I pray for. That we develop, we pray earnestly for God to give us a burden for lost people. Ignite, that's going to ignite a flame that will grow this place exponentially, crazy out the walls. Not programs. I'm not going to, we're not going to build a bigger building and attractional methods to draw a lot of people in here. That is not proper church evangelism. What is, is by those who've tasted salvation in Christ go out and proclaim. And they look very attractive to people who are looking for a Savior. You, right? Me, that's the method of evangelism. That's what looks good. It's got to start with a burden. It's got to start with a burden for lost people. When we align our hearts with God's, that is when he will do amazing things in us. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We're getting ready to sing of your glorious praise. That you are all that we need. And we can sing that and we can believe that because we know that you alone have saved us. Father, we have prepared ourselves as a church to go through these things with open minds, open hearts. Father, protect the unity in our church. Sanctify us in your word. We love you. Pray this in the precious, beautiful name of Jesus.